If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway, and we're here at Roberta's Pizza as usual. And it is uh, a very um, a lovely, sunny Sunday afternoon here in the winter in Brooklyn. And I am joined by an award-winning food editor, longtime food writer. She's the former editor of CNN's Etocracy, also the former editor-in-chief of Tasting Table. She's now the senior editor of Food and Drink for Extra Crispy, a new website. If you haven't checked it out, it's all about breakfast. And um, she has written her first book. Uh, it is not about food exactly. However, it does trace some of her career, which I'm very excited to hear more about and chat more with you about that. But uh, it is a wonderfully um, generous, funny, and poignant memoir about anxiety. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Kat Kinsman. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I apologize in advance if I am sniffling, sneezing, snorfling, all of that kind of stuff. I hey, bet. you can talk in a Pepe Le Pew accent as much <laughs> as you want. <laughs> Sorry, I was just recalling a, a delightful oh, <laughs> recollection in this book. It's a her, her book is called High Anxiety, A Life with a, yeah, life with a Bad Case of Nerves. Um, it is a lovely and just very um, gracious memoir about dealing with anxiety and managing it. But in one section in the beginning, you were calling uh, reciting a, a school paper or something in grade school and it all coming out for some reason with a weird accent, <laughs> like a French. It was such a ridiculous thing. So we were we were doing some sort of reading exercise, and I realized, like, okay, you know, I my, my I have a sister who's two years older than I am, and so I had kind of learned to read and uh, along with her. So I was a little bit ahead of the game, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from my peers when we were when we were doing this, and I had to get up in front of a crowd and, and read, That's and I was thinking, worst. oh well, it, it was it was funny because people were sort of you know doing the usual thing that you do when you start to read and stuttering a little bit and I thought like oh oh gosh I don't want to have to stand out and so I for some reason I just started doing it in a Pepe Le Pew accent <laughs> thinking it was really funny and fancy and somehow would deter from the fact that like wait she can actually read what's wrong with her oh I see yeah, so it was I a little see. bit of crazy deflection but it's it, it, it just sort of put the emphasis off of me for a minute and I really mm-hmm. appreciated that that's so funny I, I love that you know I don't know busting out a French accent is actually a lot of fun sometimes and like I never thought of it as like a great (laughs) vice to deflect from you know whatever I I think that you know getting in front of your peers in school is a huge test of nerves I mean it made me nervous reading that part (laughs) I I keep hearing from people that it's sort of triggering some panic attacks Mm -hmm. of some people and I do not intend for that to be the net effect but I really want people to feel like they're understood and if they are having these panic attacks they are far from alone yeah I think that 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 seems like um, was that the whole mission of writing this book was to sort of kind of 
show uh, unity and um, compassion for fellow anxiety. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I had written a piece a couple of years ago, a few, a few years ago now, I guess it was three uh, for CNN.com where I was uh, working at the time about my struggles with anxiety, especially over the holidays. And the response to that was so, I, mm. I had not expected anything. I had felt re- it, uh, anxiety is in, like any mental illness is incredibly isolating. And to put that out in the world and have this response and have all these people saying, oh, my God, me too, was mm-hmm. such a huge driver for it. And I thought, OK, I am a really, really lucky person. You know, I'm a straight, cisgendered, white and married woman with access to health care. And a whole lot of people who suffer from these things aren't. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I start, you know, it's not fun to talk about mental illness, but if not me, who should do this? Mm-hmm. And if I can do anything to normalize it, to normalize the conversation yeah. and let people know that they uh, are deserving of health and uh, health care and good treatment, then, yeah, it was it was my duty to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in going through all, all these memories, it, it sounds like, um, do you wish you had like a book like this to sort of read and understand from when you're, I don't know, in sixth grade or something? I don't or, know if yeah. I would have been open to that or, or not at it's the time. It's a bit so, much, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm looking now at sort of the resources that kids have, and it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm hearing huh. with this book, a lot of parents are saying, like, while there's some subject matter in there that is not appropriate for children, um, it, it makes them able to look at their kid and realize that they have some of these issues going on. It's not fun to, you know, I, I know this from seeing my parents, not fun to look at your child and think that they have, you know, are dealing with a mental illness, that they're dealing with something really painful. My own parents, you know, they're, they're fantastic, and, but they wanted to find every single physical oh, reason for yeah. what was going on before, um, you know, entertaining the notion that it might be something that was, you know, mentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, just hearing person to person, even if it's a book or just, uh, I don't know, a meeting is always, I, I, I felt like I was talking to a person reading your book. So it was, a, it was very comforting. I'm glad. Yeah. I, I wanted people to feel like they weren't alone. I keep thinking when I started writing these mental illness essays and I was lucky enough to have, you know, to be at CNN where they were incredibly supportive of my speaking openly about mm-hmm. this. And I was thinking they're my employer. They're probably not going to fire me for, yeah. for writing this since they commissioned it. Um, that, you know, I was lucky enough to have that support and the, the kind of audience that they have. I, it, I, I sort of say it, it was akin to coming out. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it really felt like all these lights flicking on in the darkness. And all of a sudden, oh, there's one and there's one and there's one and there's one. And suddenly my universe lit up with all of these other people. I felt so much less alone. That's such an incredible thing, I guess, about being a writer is that you don't know. You throw things sort of into the world and you don't know what's going to stick and how much. And it sounds like you hit a nerve um, that was, you know, very, very, um, you know, universal um, through writing about this. And, you know, aside from writing about food, (laughs) you know, it, it, did you feel like you found another purpose? Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many fantastic food writers out there, yourself included. And there are Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are using it as in, I think people have always done this, but increasingly as a lens to talk about something else, uh, you know, yeah. personal, societal, right, it's right. a really great political. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking at the people who do the race and food podcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they're using it as a lens to talk about, you know, representation in, mm-hmm. in the media. There are people who are using it to talk about, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, just issues all over the spectrum. And I think we're living in a really, really golden age of 
with food writing, you know, people yeah. complain like, oh, people are too, you know, obsessed with being foodies and stuff. If you read a little bit deeper and give yourself a little bit uh, more leeway to read other things, you'll find that um, there's some really smart stuff happening. Yeah, it's not just about food, too. And I, I right. think that's wonderful. You can be writing about something that sounds... Yeah, or it's personally not so fun. But then, thanks to this uh, incredible community, you find um, joy and just maybe solace. Um, let's talk about uh, the wonderful world of food writing for a moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so you're um, senior editor at Extra Crispy, super fun, super cool website. Um, you've worked in various roles, but um, mostly in digital media, in food. And uh, where do you see food media going right now. Now, we're about like five or six years ago from, I think, um, an article by Amanda Hesser that was very Gloomsday-esque <laughs> about what it's like to be a food writer or should I be a food writer, so forth. And media is changing underneath our feet all the time. Uh, how would one... I guess, what do you say to people who are like, how do I get to be you, Kat Kinsman? Uh, right. First of all, like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> um, Look at what this has done to me. It's, it's um, funny. I mean, I think people, you know, I, I think the conversation is so open to this. You can do everything from, I think, like what the New York Times is, is doing is really tremendous, getting more and more people to cook and talk about cooking and, mm -hmm. and really reclaiming you know, actual cooking at home, I think it's a really fantastic and beautiful thing. Epicurious does a great, great job of that food 52. Um, and I think, especially with this um, upcoming administration, that food is going to be even more politicized than it ever has been before. And I, you know, I consider, I, I always sort of say extra crispy is a little bit of a Trojan horse mm. because you hear it, it sounds hilarious on the surface. Oh, it's a website all about breakfast and brunch. And do you think like, okay, how far you can, <laughs> you know, it's not, it sounds kind of silly. I remember the day we launched, people were like, you know, what the heck is going on? Is this, you know, is, is this, this just seems kind of ridiculous and trend driven and stuff. Um, the great thing about extra crispy is the brainchild of this fantastic, uh, my, my boss, Meredith Turrets, who uh, works for the foundry, which is the, uh, a digital part of time Inc. And, and she was kind of looking around to see what wasn't really covered yet. And, you know, mm -hmm. breakfast was this interesting kind of white space for that. People were, you know, breakfast was definitely a, you know, a cultural obsession, but people weren't writing about it a whole lot. And she assembled this team of people who I can't believe I get to work alongside every day. Mm -hmm. They're just, it's, it's just like the transformer, like Voltron, of, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. smart people. Somebody comes from a political think tanks, uh, you know, people come from, you know, cultural writing background. Um, and sort of with her and our site director, Ryan Graham, they assembled this team team where we use it as a lens to talk about everything from you know hunger to club kids to uh, you know the upcoming election and we realized a really you know it's a really great way to talk about absolutely anything we want to but you know so long as it has a, a breakfast peg and nobody's stopping us right. and we're only getting encouragement yeah. which is fantastic I like to say when you know people say uh, food writing they always think of restaurant reviewing and that is not <laughs> extra crispy that is not so much no. of what is out there at all no and we're using it I mean one of my favorite things is we use it um, we have sort of actively put out, um, you know, a welcome mat to, you know, writers of all different backgrounds, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. writers of color all over the, you know, the gender spectrum and stuff to really tell their stories and really, you know, give that kind of representation. Yeah. And I'm really, you know, happy with how that's been going in the reception it's it's been given. And, you know, the more of that we do, the more people, you know, come and, and read what we have to do and contribute to it as well. I think it's a it's a really cool scope and it's uh, it lends itself to so many deep dives into ingredients, for instance, and also cultures, because like food, breakfast is universal. It's not mm -hmm. just 
Um, although the topic of brunch in Manhattan is endlessly, in, uh, you know, <laughs> lends itself true. to many debates. And here's a fun thing. Um, Donald Trump doesn't eat breakfast. He, he doesn't like breakfast. He doesn't eat breakfast. He doesn't uh, drink coffee. He was spotted apparently somewhere drinking coffee recently. But um, the first piece I wrote actually for Extra Crispy was before I was a staff writer there. And they were just um, getting in freelance pieces. And I was just having such a ball writing this. But I found out like he's he doesn't care about breakfast. Wow. He also doesn't drink, too. He does not drink. He's he he just uh, you know likes to be seen eating what is it uh, taco bowls and Big Macs or something. (laughs) But I think also you know it's it's just a thing. I mean breakfast is it's such a funny sort of tabula rasa for the day. You can decide Mm -hmm. you know figure out how your day is going to go by you know how you how you start it out. Yeah. And if he's starting it out just being yeah people and you can start it out as as fuel if you just want to like stick a power bar in your mouth and (laughs) go about your business. That's what that's you know that's a story to be told but the fact that the you know sort of actively opposes breakfast weird um Kat, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I have to know you. Roberta's Pizza. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> Which cool. was really great. Some Menduya. We got uh, the mm, Speck and Wolf and nice. the original and some olives. And it was the perfect, perfect way to start the day. Excellent. So going into this new administration year, which in which uh, I think the media is being very um, you know targeted right now, or a lot of attention is being put on it. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of, what do you expect to see and maybe specifically in the world of food writing, are we going to see more think pieces about Trump's food habits or something? Well, what I really want to see is eagle eye on um, the administration's oversight of uh, you know, the USDA, mm-hmm. about regulations. We were doing um, a trend piece, you know, where you predict the t- breakfast trends of the next year. It's yeah. If you work in food writing, it's but the there's law. There's always going to be that. What's, and, what's hot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Year, yeah. Like, what's coming up? And, mm-hmm. you know, so we were saying, you know, jackfruit and, mm-hmm. and, you know, ice cream for breakfast. And my prediction was salmonella. And, <laughs> oh, and the thing geez, is, that doesn't even... So funny. I, well, it doesn't but, even come out of nowhere. When I started at CNN, within my first few months, that was the big story um, was, you know, re- the recall of half a billion eggs. And that was even with pretty good government oversight. Um, you know, he's he's talked about rolling some of that back. If there's even less government oversight, so many pe- more people are going to be sick. Yeah, I know. There, he's, he's like down with like even just the basic, uh, uh, what's it called? Food safety regulations. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. just... What? Wait, more outbreaks? That's okay. Uh, I think we're really going to, you know, I, so I think a lot of food writing is going to be um, in mm. response to that. And I think a lot, you know, based on uh, personal responsibility and safety, really, because, you know, if, you're, if your food isn't being looked out for before it gets to you, you're going to have to learn how to handle it in a really safe manner at home. Yeah. I can get behind that kind of food writing and reading. Mm-hmm. And um, if there's an in, like, a delicious sort of, you know, lifestyle topic that is starting it out albeit you know so be it like i'm i'm totally ready for it and welcoming that so um much to talk about um we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and we'll be right back chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth 
So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. All right, we're back chatting more with Kat Kinsman. She is the author of the new memoir, High Anxiety. And Kat, you are such um, a successful and established food writer and editor. And I'm curious, we were talking a little bit off air about how you seem to have a dual career also talking about mental health. Um, How do you think those two uh, uh, paths bridge, or do they, in your line of work? Well, the way that that's played out is I... I'm really open about this. And even before the book came out, Mm -hmm. I I wrote a lot about it. So what started happening was I would be interviewing a chef who was doing a, you know, a demo, whether it was at, you know, CNN or tasting table or wherever I was working. And we would go off air for a minute, stop recording. And they would say like, look, can I talk to you for a second? And they would talk about their own depression, their own anxiety or, or that of somebody Hmm. who worked in their restaurant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so pervasive Mm -hmm. and happens, you know, once, okay, they trust me a couple of times, like, okay. Okay, they must really trust me. And it started happening more than half of the time. And then last year, there were actually the year before last year, there were a few high profile deaths in the uh, yeah, food community. I know. And it got to um, so early uh, in uh, almost a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, January 1st or 2nd of 2016, I launched a website called Chefs with Issues to really explore mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the issues, the, uh, the mental health issues that people in the restaurant industry are facing. And with that, I, I launched a survey asking people, you know, what are the issues you face? Uh, you know, what kind of care are you getting for them? What are the attitudes yeah. from the people who, uh, who you work with? And I thought I would get a few dozen responses, maybe a couple hundred if I was lucky. And uh, last I, I looked in, I had over 1,600 oh responses. And it's really, it's really, there's a very, very clear pattern about what there's is happening. There's a strong need, yeah, to have more discussion around this topic, which, you know, it's, it's really sad when you see something just sort of hit a wall and... Um, you know, a brilliant career sort of come to an end. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's time to like start talking about the the why, but also just start talking and put it out in the open. Yeah, and I've been yeah. fortunate enough over the course of the past year to really be able to. Uh, you know, I went to Mad Symposium and talked about it in in Copenhagen. There, I was able to speak at, at Cherry Bomb, and uh, you know, in addition to the survey, the people people could answer it, and then they they could fill in tick in boxes and things. But then I left. Uh, an area at the end where they could write in whatever they wanted to just get it off their chest. They could do it anonymously or not anonymously. I work with a group also called the Heirloom Foundation based out of Charleston, and they get together grants for the families of chefs who are, are going through crisis. And I said, okay, you need some anecdotal evidence. I went through uh, that column. I thought, oh, I'll take a minute and I'll go through mm-hmm. and I'll redact any personal information just okay. to make sure. Yeah. I, 26,000 words later, I had a document to send them with just stories that people told me about what they were facing in their restaurants. And it is real, it is pervasive, and it's about to get worse if uh, people suddenly, the few people who have health care are stripped of it. It's about to get really, really tired. Do you think that the food industry is particularly fraught for exhaustion, stress, um, yeah, yeah. 
and, and a lack of um, benefits. Yeah, people don't have uh, people don't have the money. They don't have the health care. It's you know a brutal and demanding career, and you know let's say you're you're getting it's off fragile too to yeah. like open a restaurant. It's, just, it's people yeah. don't have any money. I mean the profit margins are so completely tight, and you know and we're looking at you know celebrity chefs is one right, thing, yeah. but then you have you know you go to your sous chef, you go to your line cooker, your dishwasher, your porter, your server, who uh, don't have the resources, and then what do you see that's in front of you oh hey here's my shift drink Mm -hmm. here's us getting off at two in the morning we're wired let's go and get another drink let's oh wait i want to stay out i you want to take this bump of whatever is being offered to me and then it's hard to wake up the next day it's it it really feeds itself and it's also a profession that's really really great for a lot of people who maybe can't have a traditional career that you know they find a family in the restaurant kitchen and the order and repetition is so great for them and it's it's a really fantastic thing but then you also you know find a community where you know, it's a chicken egg sort of thing. People with certain vulnerabilities are drawn to the profession, but then maybe some of uh, things are exacerbated because of it. Um, mm. But what I'm finding, more and more people are willing to talk about it, and I think a lot of people are starting to break the cycle. Yeah, no, that's great. And what do you think about um, being a writer, uh, particularly a food writer? Because you have a wonderfully triumphant sort of passage in here where you describe having to go through, you know, facing up to trolls and other sorts of criticism, you know, seeing the Amazon.com review which are kind of, you know, you never know what you're going to get out there in response to a story, for instance. Um, I love, if you, if you don't mind, could I read? Oh, yeah, please. Um, okay. Um, you write, here's the thing. The higher up you climb, the harder it is to hide. When you screw up in the big gig, or someone thinks you did, it's in high definition, broadcast on millions of TVs and computer monitors across the globe, and people won't hesitate to tell you all about it. So, um you know, da da da. You go about talking about how, you know, you you have to expect blowback, maybe even death threats. And then you write, it means people are paying attention and t- taking what you say seriously. It means I'm doing my job. Once I took the leap and someone decided to pay me to be a full-time writer and editor, it was the very worst thing I could do. Oh, the very worst thing I could do was to be afraid of having a strong opinion. Do your homework, back it up with facts when you can, and you're bulletproof. That was my game. Um, I, I think that that's a really strong message um, to any kind of aspiring writer out there because, you know, you're going to face, especially in this digital, you know, media age, you're going to face blowback for just the benignest things, too, sometimes. Oh, <laughs> for being a woman sometimes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I remember one, com- know. one comment in particular. I remember I'd gone on, on CNN. I was doing a segment about... Health alert systems when there are you know outbreaks in you know in in restaurant kitchens or something, and somebody tweeted at me to let me know he had to uh, stop his masturbation session because my face uh, came on his TV um, and upset him enough. And I was like, wait, you were watching Mm -hmm. Sanjay Gupta's show during that anyway? Mm -hmm. Like that was your plan, sir? Mm -hmm, And the thing mm -hmm. is completely unrelated to the quality of what I did. But if you are a person in the public eye, especially if you're a woman, it, it has nothing to do with how good your work is. And the sooner you realize that, the you know, the better. Yeah. I'd given, you know, a, I think a good informative segment on this show. And that was his takeaway from it. And there was nothing I could do about it. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, I love that you, you know, you still take on those challenges. You you picked a fight with Anthony Bourdain. You, you know, you criticized Paula Deen. <laughs> I know. It ended up being great. But also, you know, you don't, you can't, watering down your opinion is not the solution here. You can't make everyone happy. Uh, especially not right now. I mean, yeah. I mean, the... Uh, 
you know, we're all going to have some a lot to look back on <laughs> in in a few years. And I think if we're not all in a position where we thought, you know, we did the best we possibly could, um, you know, then. I don't know. I don't want to get to a place in my life where I regret not having, you know, taken the shot, having said what I believe in. It's there are a whole lot of things to be afraid of, you Mm -hmm. know, and Mm -hmm. some of them are more real than others. But it's been a real struggle to me um, to get to a place where I don't let fear completely rule my life. But I've realized like regret is a a far more painful thing than, you know, regret at not having done something would be far more painful than, you know, having stood up for something I believe in. Speaking of which, I mean, I I think that it's a real testament in itself that you are a very busy, you know, very successful writer. And yet you talk about, you know, having these fears um, throughout this book and um, including the the opening passage where you're running to make a, a flight. And you get caught up looking for your ring or something like that. And, you know, uh, it, it was actually it was it was funny, but it was also like it made my heart pound. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you're reading this and you're I think that the the triumphant message is that you can overcome that. You didn't not go on that flight, you know, for instance. Yeah, I think the best thing we can do is allow each other humanity, um, whoever you're looking at. Um, you know, if if they're if they're out in public, even if it's somebody on the same train as you, like they had, to, you don't know what anybody had to go through to get out of the house that day. Yeah, and true. I think that's what's really opened it up to me. That when I, you know, I I'm very public in there about, you know, I have a sort of mild agoraphobia sometimes, where it really is hard to just leave my house. Um, and I can go and do things like be on, go and speak in front of hundreds of people, or be on live TV, and nobody mm-hmm. would suspect that it was really really hard for me just to get out my front door that day. And I think the fact of saying that allows other people to realize oh wow you know i i'm i'm going through the same thing i'm not alone right. you know i can i can get through that as well i think if we allow each other that little bit of humanity that goes it doesn't cost you any being mm-hmm. being kind to somebody doesn't cost you anything no. it only adds to your own humanity so why not you know take a chance and do that that's a great point that's really really nice and um uh, yeah, I, I think that everyone will pick up on that from from reading this book and and just enter their days with a little bit more of a smile, hopefully. Um, I, one thing I wanted to note that I really enjoyed <laughs> looking through this book is that you have these little um, vignettes, I guess, about... Uh, so, you know, it's a memoir. It follows your life, you know, from childhood and so forth to your career. But interspersed are these fun little vignettes or whatever you want to call them about irrational fears. And no, I've heard of the elevator one. I've heard of, you know, I don't know, being in a crowded subway car. But you have ones that are hilarious. Uh, Rational fear number eight, for example, picking things up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. I actually will say it right now. Um, I dropped a ring off for repair that my husband had given me. What is uh, with that? We, oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's entirely rational, but it's one of the things that most people, like that more people than any of these other fears have said uh-huh. that they have too. Really? You drop something off no. to be fixed or something like that, and you're afraid to go pick it up because you're afraid it's going to be gone. So you oh. just let it go and go and go and go. Oh, so, yeah, so this ring that we're finally picking up. My husband mm-hmm. had given me um, a year ago, like, I, I don't know, we dropped it off a year ago tomorrow and picking it up. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess I, I kept thinking like, oh, it's been a little time. Oh my gosh, they probably threw it away. Oh my gosh. And the longer I go without like confirmation of the fact that they threw it away, uh-huh, you know, it's, uh-huh. it, it is entirely irrational. It's, I own this. It's right, right. But really so many people, and especially like really? during, in the chapter, I talk about my car being towed and then mm-hmm. being afraid to go and pick it up. So many people have come up to me and said, oh my God, you don't know how many thousands of dollars Ooh. I've spent getting my car back or waiting to get my car back or whatever and just letting it sit there. It's weird. Hey, let's talk more about these rational fears and then maybe we'll not do them or <laughs> not follow them. Um, I love this one, getting my hair cut. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I can understand that. You know, somebody's touching your hair. It's a little personal space issue. But also, what if they chop off, you know, some weird section? <laughs> yeah, it is the know. social interaction of it, too. It's like it's the small talk. It's And actually, right. the last time I did get my hair professionally cut, I did, in fact, get a whole foot, maybe even like foot and a half. I have really, really long hair. It's always in a bun on top of my mm-hmm, head. Mm-hmm. Um, and this woman behind me screamed. And I would think it's my hair, not yours. Um, but it's That's yeah, bizarre. It's, yeah, <laughs> Just- it's. <laughs> really strange and it's it's sort of like a you know getting the appointment on time like oh my gosh the tip how do i do that and do i have to have to make small talk and then what if they think i'm gonna look horrible it's it's such a ridiculous thing that's mm-hmm. one of those things too so i you know i cut my, i have really long hair i cut my bangs myself i cut them this morning mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's it's just one of those things where it, it's actually kind of powerful i found out for other people to say like oh my god me too it makes me laugh too instead of like oh, worry yeah. about these things anymore i laugh because somebody is talking about them and oh, then yeah. we're realizing how ridiculous it is. Oh, it's yeah. Fun. It's like once you like you shine know? a light yeah. on any of these things, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's so silly. Yeah. You know, that's why I call them like so the, the title of these is Irrational it's Fears. It's not self-knowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, like being a passenger in a car, sometimes being a driver of a car, you know, it, it's it's these little things. And you feel and that's one of the things about anxiety that's so isolating because you think like nobody would understand right, right. if they knew that I was afraid of this little thing. And then it turns out like. Other people have it too. Oh my gosh, I'm not just a total freak. <laughs> it's really empowering. I don't know. I think this is a, f- a really fun book, and Thank you. Um, I'm so glad you came to talk on about this. Um, in between, you know, going to a conference soon, so I'm glad we could catch you, Kat. Um, but I guess that's about all the time we have for today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah. And the pizza was fantastic. Awesome. Always a specialty here at Heritage. All right. Well, everyone check out High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. And thanks again, Kat. Thank you. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.